0: The following message is from the Church of Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Here's the truth about our wiring as human beings we are creatures who cannot live without tomorrow in mind, right? Many of us, Sunday evenings and worshiping on Sunday evenings are really, really tough. Why? Because tomorrow is Monday. Merit is give me the amen nod right over here. Tomorrow is Monday. As soon as you leave here, you're going to get dinner, and you're going to begrudgingly inch towards the start of your week, the due dates, the early mornings, clocking back in. Whether you like it or not, Monday morning is like 12 hours away, right? I remember growing up in church, we always had Sunday morning worship, Sunday evening worship, and Wednesday evening worship. And at our Sunday evening services, my family always had this tradition of going to eat at Carolina Fine Foods, which is like fried grease balls. It's like, just, it's just greasy mess, you know? And every Sunday night after church, my family would go. It was like a, you kind of transplant our church and kind of drop us over at Carolina Fine Foods after worship. And I loved it. And the reason that I loved it, the fried grease was one reason. But the other reason that I loved it was because it was like the last weekend activity, it was like the last kind of fun thing that we were going to do this weekend before school started in the morning. It was like the final fun thing before the flickered light of the weekend gave way to the crushing darkness of Monday, right? That's how it felt, at least to like 17, 16-year-old me enjoying my milkshakes from Carolina Fun Foods. Right now, we feel Monday breathing down our neck. But if Monday for you is a day off, you feel a little bit better about the prospect of what Monday brings for you. Or tomorrow you get to start a project that you've been really looking forward to at work. Maybe tomorrow marks the, the, the first day of a long-awaited vacation. That's totally different. And the reason is is because God made us to be creatures who are energized by hope. God created us to be energized by hope. To be people who look forward to stuff and are, and are enriched and nourished by that. Seriously, it's like our fuel as humans. It's what enables us to do anything, the hope of a brighter tomorrow. We are energized by hope and we need hope, right? And the opposite is true. If we need hope and we're energized by hope and we kind of get our juices flowing on hope, we're creatures that are totally sapped and crushed and downtrodden when we can't find anything to hope in, right? And so here's a question that probably has some bearing for each of us in this room This moment. Is there any reason to hope? Is there any reason for us to have any kind of hope in anything? We survey our lives, and we we feel maybe some days suffocated by the monotony. It's like we had these really big dreams about the stuff I was going to do and the things I was going to be, but it's totally been crushed. In fact, our lives feel full of disappointments and bad decisions and shattered hopes, and they're all just kind of piled on top of each other. Things are not the way I expected them to, 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 to sort of work themselves out. And as a result, we've developed almost like an immune response to hope or optimism. We're in difficult marriages, or we're stuck in difficult work situations, and we're definitely super aware of all of the things that could go wrong at any second. Our health, our kids' health, our jobs, our society, fill in the blank. We are aware that this thing could go south instantly at any time. And so we're totally dismayed and we're discouraged about all sorts of things. We're totally dismayed and discouraged about church. We look around at our churches and they seem complicit in all of the problems. It's like we look at church and we wonder, is, could this be for real? Could, could there be any legitimacy to this, given some of the things that we've seen? It's like the one place that's supposed to be a haven from these issues, that place can't even stand against them. And so we're overwhelmed with the state of things. Whatever those things are, we know that there's bad news about it, and so we feel overwhelmed. We we feel sapped, we're crushed, we're downtrodden. Is there any reason for us to hope? Now, as I mentioned, we've been studying Matthew's gospel, and this year we've spent time studying the final week of Jesus' life leading up to his crucifixion. Matthew 21, on Palm Sunday We're told that Jesus comes to town, and during the course of that week, he confronts the religious leaders and condemns their worship by flipping over the tables in their temple and saying, "This place is compromised." You skip to Thursday in Matthew twenty-six. Jesus has his final supper with his followers. He eats the Passover meal with his followers and says, "The Passover tells you something about what I've come to do," and then predicts that one of his disciples, that that, well all of his disciples are going to jump ship, and one of his disciples is going to betray him. Then during the night, on Thursday night, he goes into the garden and he embraces God's call in his life, which is to give his life as a ransom for many. And from there, he is betrayed and arrested, betrayed by a kiss. He's tried all throughout the night. He's tossed between authority figures all night long, and then Matthew 27, Friday morning, he's taken to be crucified. He's offered up on a cross to be brutally murdered. And last week, in the verses just before this section, last week, on Friday afternoon, it tells us that Jesus yields his spirit that Jesus dies. And so where we pick up in the scripture that Shannon just wonderfully read, it's Friday evening. Jesus has been dead for several hours. The authorities have his body. The disciples are scattered and dismayed. And if we can relate to any characters in scripture, if I can relate to any characters in scripture, it has to be Jesus' followers Friday evening and Saturday. The one that they thought to be the Messiah, he's dead. The enemy, he's one. He's won. The powers have snuffed him out. Whatever reason there was for hope, it's not there anymore because Jesus isn't here any longer. Let's pick up in Matthew 27, 57. When it was evening, a rich man, excuse me, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. Now we're told Friday evening, this man from Arimathea, a city just northwest of Jerusalem, a wealthy man named Joseph appears. A man, we're told, who was a follower of Jesus. And one of the things that we've pointed out over and over again in the book of Matthew is, is the incredible way Jesus' followers cut across kind of every, every dividing line. It's like uh, Jesus attracts all sorts of people to himself. We see the rich, the poor, the tax collectors, Jews, Gentiles, soldiers, men, women. Jesus draws from all types of people. And in the story of Joseph of, of Arimathea, we see this. It's It's truly astounding. But what makes Joseph, I think, especially astounding is that we're actually told in the other Gospels that Joseph is a member of the Sanhedrin. He's one of those who's a part of the Jewish council, except he's the disciple of Jesus. It's kind of reminiscent of the character of Nicodemus, who goes to Jesus by night because he's interested in in Jesus and the things that Jesus has done. So Joseph of Arimathea, he's, he's actually one of these religious leaders that we've talked so much about, except he believes Jesus. He's followed after Christ. He's referred to as a disciple, a follower of Christ. And he's obviously a man of considerable means. Verse 58. Joseph went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it, uh, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, that is possibly to be understood as the mother of Jesus, was there sitting opposite the tomb. So we're told that Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate, he requests Jesus' body, and he opens up his family tomb for Jesus. Uh, So think about like like a private mausoleum, you know, a family, a wealthy family. Maybe they purchase a mausoleum and they, you know, kind of ahead of time prepare all of the family members to be buried in this particular thing. My, my grandpa always makes this joke, my my grandma, my grandma and my, my papa Hoffman, they're going to be buried in a mausoleum together, and my grandpa says, so you can smell my feet for eternity, that's what he tells my grandma, which, because of the way they're going to be laid. Anyway, so, so think sort of like a private mausoleum. So this guy was rich, he had this family mausoleum just outside of the holy city. This is a dude with not insignificant amounts of money. Now it's worth noting here that victims of crucifixion weren't typically buried like, it wasn't, that they were, it wasn't just that they weren't buried well, they just weren't buried. They were left out, you know, exposed to the elements. For Jewish victims of crucifixion, this was especially shameful, and so oftentimes they would take the bodies of those crucified and throw it into kind of a burial pit. Definitely not take it to a family tomb, the way that Joseph of Arimathea does here. Joseph's faithfulness and even hospitality, we might say, to Jesus here is commendable. It's, it's, it's really kind of impressive, really beautiful. Now, now, why would Joseph do this? Now, Matthew doesn't tell us, but in Mark 15, Joseph is described as someone who is seeking the kingdom of God. So maybe Joseph is emboldened by Jesus' death. Maybe Joseph remembers the things that Jesus said, I'm going to be delivered up to the authority figures. He remembers Jesus' saying about how he would die, and maybe Joseph feels pretty sure this grave isn't going to be occupied for too long. Maybe Joseph has hope. Something else worth noting here comes from Isaiah chapter 53. I'll have it on the screen. Isaiah 53 describes the suffering servant figure who was to come. This was written almost 800 years before Jesus. Isaiah 53.9 says this, speaking of the suffering servant, They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. What's so great to me about this is Matthew portrays Jesus as someone who is fulfilling the great story, fulfilling the prophecies of old, even when dead. Now, there's a couple of other really important things to point out here in this passage. There's, There's several very specific details that are given. Like, for instance, it says that Mary and the other Mary are present. This has happened a couple of times in this crucifixion account, particularly verses 55 and 56. It seems like Matthew is saying, these people were present. So if you have any questions about the way that these things work themselves out, go talk with these people because they were present. And when we see later on when Mary and the other Mary go running to the tomb, they aren't mistaken about which tomb Jesus is buried in. They didn't go to the wrong tomb because they were present. It's clear as Matthew is writing this that he is writing history. He is writing a factual account, a recording of the things that actually took place. This is not just a positive story with moral lessons. Matthew is intending to write history here. There's a place to explore the legitimacy of the, these accounts and to sort of wrestle through that. But it's important to point out that the gospel writers are writing these things as true events. They are not intended to be read as something like fables. Part of Jude's homeschool curriculum, my son, is he reads these fables, right? The Aesop's fables. You've got the tortoise and the hare. You've got the grasshopper and the ant. You've got all the classics, all, all the... All the the fables that you remember from when when you were a kid. And sometimes we can read through the Bible and the Gospels and the story of Jesus in the same kind of category as those fables. But actually, when you read the Gospels, you can't help but be struck by how doggone detailed and historical they are. It's because they want to tell us that these things happened, that these are events that changed history that we should respond to. So Christianity isn't first philosophy or moral teaching or theory, it's events And clearly, what's being relayed here in chapter 27 is that Jesus has died. He didn't faint on the cross. He hasn't swooned or passed out from blood loss. He's dead. Verses 58 and 59, they they talk about Jesus' body, his corpse. And the Bible clearly states that Jesus died, like actual, real death. Scripture makes clear that Jesus' heart, lungs, and synapses stopped. Jesus has died. And Joseph of Arimathea requests to bury Jesus. Friday. Verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away. And tell the people, he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. And so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So the next day, which is the Sabbath day, the day of preparation is the day before the Sabbath. Therefore, the day after the day of preparation is the Sabbath. Matthew has a sort of cumbersome way of saying that. Uh, The religious leaders were told, go to the governor, Pilate. Uh, Now, one commentator was saying that the kind of clumsy way of referring to the Sabbath is either Matthew's just being like overly verbose, or Matthew is saying something subtle about the events of Jesus' burial. Think about this. Friday is the day of preparation. The day of preparation was the day you would prepare to observe the Sabbath. But Matthew wants us to see Friday, the day when Jesus is buried, is the day of preparation. Jesus is being prepared for what? Stay tuned. We're told here that another group goes to Pilate. Yesterday, Joseph, a religious leader, goes to Pilate and asks for Jesus. He says, give me Jesus' body so I can honor him by placing him in a family grave. Today, another group of religious leaders comes to Pilate. Pilate's like, what is the deal with these people? Pilate probably is exasperated at this point. This time they go to ask Pilate to deploy more guards to ensure that Jesus' disciples won't try and steal the body and make claims about his resurrection. They say, look, Jesus said three days after his death he would come back to life. So if you could, I don't know, deploy a couple of extra guards here so none of his followers get any funny ideas and go stealing his body, that would be really, really great, Pilate, if you'd be willing to do that. Because they say in verse 64 that the last fraud would be worse than the first now, one of the things that we've said here in these final chapters of Matthew is the irony is just laid on thick. Like, frequently, these religious leaders are so much more right, than, uh, than, than uh, correct, than they have any clue about. They recognize that if they go about talking about Jesus having been resurrected, that's going to lead to a movement that's going to be really, really, really hard to stop. The first fraud is that this dude is for real, that Jesus is for real. He amassed this loyal following. He was an an imposter that duped people. That was bad enough. But if word gets out that Jesus' body leaves the tomb, these religious leaders say, bad news bears. We cannot allow that to take place. That would mean people would think that Jesus was right. No, it, it would be much, much worse if word got out that Jesus resurrected. If people thought that Jesus came back to life, well, the people will think that Jesus was indeed all that he said he was. The people would believe in Jesus it would unleash a movement that would be impossible to stop. People would hope once again, and that would be a disaster. No resurrection on our watch, the Pharisees, adamant defenders of the resurrection, ironically, say. So they say, we have to do everything we can to prevent that. Pilate, deploy some troops. we got to guard the tomb. we got to make it secure. Saturday. Chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, Sabbath is Saturday to the Jews. It's the last day of the week, which means Sunday is what? It's the first day of the week. And Matthew tells us that it's the dawn of the first day of the week. Not only that, let's think about some other things in this passage that are really striking. Can you think of any other instances in Jesus' life where there's a big deal made out of the fact that there's a Mary and a Joseph. Matthew chapter 1, when we're told that Mary's betrothed to Joseph and the Lord goes to Mary and says, you're going to be having a son whose name is Jesus. Hey, here's another question. Jesus, is, we're told, is wrapped in a linen shroud. Are there any other instances that we can think of where Jesus is wrapped maybe in swaddling clothes, let's say? Or what about when Jesus finds himself in the, the cleft of a rock? sort of like a tomb. I think Matthew is very subtly sort of suggesting that we're intended to see something parallel here between Jesus' birth and Jesus' resurrection, between the womb and the tomb. That can't be coincidence. Something big is about to happen, Matthew wants us to see. So we're told that in the dark, dew-covered early morning, these two faithful women, they go to the tomb to show honor to Jesus' body, but then, verse 2, Behold, there was a great earthquake, the second earthquake in three days. Like, that's a big deal. There's a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. So the women arrive at Jesus' tomb. Remember, they saw where Jesus is buried. They're not at the wrong tomb. They arrive at the tomb, and what do they see? That the stone has been rolled back. A considerable feat, most certainly not something to be done by two women. It's been rolled away, and they're sitting on the stone as one, like lightning and snow, an angel. Verse four. And for fear of the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. You seen those YouTube videos of those pygmy goats? They get, sp- they get spooked and fall over dead. <laughs> That's what I think of here: seize up and topple over. For fear of the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. To the women, not to the guards, to the women, he says, Don't be afraid. I know you seek Jesus, the crucified Jesus, the dead and buried Jesus. But, verse 6, He is not here, for He is risen, as He said. Jesus has come back to life. Just like he said he would. In all four of the Gospels, one of the things that's really remarkable about the resurrection account is that we're not given a ton of inside information about the actual resurrection. We, we, we always get the disciples' point of view, which is like just after the fact. You know what it reminds me of is in Exodus 33. Do you remember the story in Exodus 33 when Moses tells the Lord, Show me your glory? What does the Lord say? I'll pass in front of you and you can see where I just was. I wonder if we're intended to see something of God's glory and and that the the angel invites the women here to see where God, where Jesus just was. Come, see the place where he lay. It is vacant. Verse seven. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Jesus is alive, just as he promised he would be. Look, that's where they buried him. Vacancy. Sign over it. Is, it is wide open. He isn't there any longer. Go tell the disciples the good news. And behold, Jesus is already headed that way, and you will see him there. Verse eight. So the ladies departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. I love that. With fear and great joy. Isn't that just a, a perfect description? Have you, ever, have you ever felt that combo? Combination of fear and great joy? Have you ever been in a situation where a loved one was was maybe their health wasn't great, but they received a positive diagnosis? There's something positive about the diagnosis that's given, and it has a way of lifting your mood. It's like everything felt dark and heavy and it's suddenly lifted. The light gets in for a second. And there's great joy and relief. But there's still this gnawing fear at the back of it all because you know that at any moment the rug could be pulled out from beneath you. These women receiving these news, this news is filled with fear and great joy. And so they take off. We have to tell the disciples what's happened. This is amazing. They take off to where the disciples are holed up. Verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. 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 One commentator pointed out that a more accurate sort of to our vernacular way of translating that, you know what it is? Hello. The women are dashing down the streets to find the disciples. Their legs can't take them fast enough until they bump into somebody that they know. Can you imagine? After something like 36 hours of silence and despair and dashed hopes, you hear that familiar voice. Greetings. On Friday, he was brutalized, mocked, beaten, scorned, spat upon, reviled, and hoisted upon a cross where his body gave out under the weight of sin, human cruelty, and the wrath of God. He yields his spirit with the cry, why have you forsaken me? But on Sunday, he looks these women in the eyes and says, greetings. and They respond exactly the way that they ought. They came up, they take hold of his feet, and they worship him. It's like, what else could you do in that moment? But fall at Jesus' feet and adore him. And then watch this, verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And verse eight, they depart with fear and great joy. And Jesus says, let's do without the fear side of things. Today, it's great joy. Today's about great joy. And then he tells them, Go tell my disciples, no. Go tell my followers, no. Go tell those no good abandoners, no. That's not what he says. He says, go tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Jesus betrayed, crucified, buried and dead come back to life and he says, greetings. Don't be afraid. All will be restored. Let's go see my brothers and share with them the good news. Sunday. You know what this story means for us? And October 24th, 2021, though we live in the intervening period, we might say, though our lives are like the Saturday between Friday and Sunday, that we have fear and that we have doubts, that we are downtrodden and sullen and unsure of what the future holds, because of this story, we have hope. The New Testament is a book of hope and it unpacks over and over again the hope that we have because of Jesus' resurrection. So as we read this story in Matthew 28, we walk away with our spirits lifted, filled with great joy, being told greetings by the resurrected Christ. We have hope. The scriptures hold out three types of hope for us. I'm gonna have this on the screen. First, We have hope that Jesus is who he said he was. We have hope because he's done all the things that he said he would do. And therefore, we can believe all the things that he said about himself and about his God and about his kingdom. We can believe that all of those stories are going to come true. Because Jesus left the grave. Because Jesus turned a tomb into a womb. When we consider all the horrible things out in the world and all of these things that frequently disappoint us and all of these things that we place our hopes in that leave us frustrated and leave us in the dark, the encouragement for us is as long as Jesus isn't dead, we have hope. Jesus is who he says he is and Jesus will do all of the things that he said he was going to do. So no no matter how bad or, or discouraging or disappointing things get with the church, our hope is Christ. No matter how bad we might treat each other, how disappointing things might be with each other, our hope is Christ. The princes and the chariots and the swords and the governments, our hope is Christ. He is our cornerstone, and we base our very lives on this event. This Sunday morning, when Jesus walked out of the grave 2,000 years ago, and as long as Jesus is not in that tomb, we have hope. Everything has changed in Christ. So we have hope that Jesus is who he said he is. But in the resurrection, we also have a hope in life beyond death. We have hope in the coming kingdom. The New Testament teaches that for those of us who place our faith in the crucified king, we die with him and then we will be raised with him. Christian, think about this for a second. One day, it will be said of you, she is not here, he is not here, for she, for he is risen. Our hope is that because of Christ and because he left the grave and because his body was resurrected and restored and perfected, one day Christian, ours will be too. This leads to Don Carson. This is one of my favorite quotes ever. I don't even know where he said it, but a couple of years ago in a sermon, I heard him say one time that you and I, we aren't suffering from anything a good resurrection can't fix. <laughs> is that so good? We aren't suffering from anything a good resurrection can't fix. Another guy, another one of my favorite preachers, a guy named Andrew Wilson, says this. Speaking of prayers for healing. All of our prayers for healing and relief are either yes or not yet. He turns graves into gardens. Tombs have become wombs. We have hope and life beyond death. The last thing to mention is real briefly is that you and I can have hope that we can be fixed. Hope that I can be made new. Romans chapter 6, Paul says that we are buried with Christ in death, and that we are, we are raised to walk, what? In newness of life. And I can't get over the fact that Jesus calls his disciples brothers here in this passage. Go tell my brothers that i have been resurrected. I think we're intended to see something of Jesus' restorative Gracious power and the way that He responds and gathers those guys right back in. This is true of us. That Jesus wants to make us new, and we're 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 turned inward, and we're we're self interested, and we're all miserable because we're all bent in on ourselves. But Jesus' resurrection means that we can be made new. Our spirits can be changed. Our hearts can be opened up to God's love and to love others, to love righteousness, goodness, truth, beauty. Second Corinthians five seventeen says, "If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation." I have hope that I will be remade and that I can be freed from me. (laughs) Because of Christ's resurrection, we have hope. So here's how we need to respond tonight. I would imagine that some of us need first to wrestle with the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. The fact that Jesus bodily left the grave. Some of us have never really even contended with the claims of the Gospels, that Jesus lived, that he died, and he lives evermore, and that he is, present tense, a bodily human ruling over the universe right now. 160 pounds of Jewish DNA governing the cosmos as we speak. Some of us need to wrestle with this. We need to wrestle with the claims that are made about the scriptures. Did Jesus, in fact, raise from the dead? This week the pastors are going to be putting together just a list of resources that point to the reliability of this claim. We're going to publish that via social media later this week. Resources that have been helpful for us as we've sought to to, uh, better understand the the believability of these claims that the Gospels make. Some of us need to wrestle with the truth, uh, the, the truth claims being made here in the Gospels. Others of us, we need to simply turn to Jesus and pray, Jesus Fill my heart and my eyes with the hope of your resurrection. We need to turn from all of those things that are directly in front of us that our hope hinges on and turn our eyes upward to Christ. That because of Christ, we have hope. As long as Jesus isn't dead, we have hope. And we need to go to Jesus and say, Help me to believe. I want to believe. Help my unbelief. Help me to place my hope in you. Help me to live as if this were the truth. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ isn't raised from the dead, we are to be pitied among all people. So I think one takeaway from that is that our lives are to be pitiable. Our our, our lives are to be deserving of pity if we're not living as if Christ is resurrected. So we, we need to ask, Holy Spirit, help me to live with an investment in your kingdom that only makes sense if you are indeed resurrected from the dead. It's my prayer for for me and for us, our church family, that we would be a people who are just energized by the hope of the resurrection, people who live for another city, a city that is to come. And the way that we love one another, the way that we evangelize, the way that we disciple each other, the way that we make disciples of all nations, we do so in light of the fact that Christ is resurrected, that he reigns forever and ever and ever and ever. In the next few moments, we're going to, just have some space to pray. There's reflection questions on your, the back of your bulletin, and as Aaron mentioned last week, uh, there's a QR code if you have any questions about any of the things that we talk about. Um, we, we do a pastor's talkback podcast. And if you want to grab me after worship, I'll be posted out by this door back here, and we'd love to talk with you about any of the things that we've talked about this evening. Over the space of the next few minutes, I would encourage you just to pause and reflect and ask the, the Lord to speak to you in those moments. And then uh, the band is going to invite us back up to sing and celebrate that Jesus is better. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you in prayer as our resurrected king. And I don't know how it works, but but somehow your eardrums are registering these sound waves. and You're you're hearing us pray, and, and, and you, Jesus, are our king. And you are so because you rose triumphantly over the dead. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that we'd be a people of hope. And that our church would be a community that is... Energized by the hope of the resurrection and that our lives would be filled with just the the hope of another world I pray this evening for any folks who are struggling to believe uh, wondering whether or not there's anything credible or legitimate about the Christian faith and I pray that you would turn their attention towards the resurrection that they would wrestle with the claims that the gospel writers make here in the uh, the claims of the uh, the Christian faith over the centuries and that you would open their eyes to see that Christ is indeed resurrected. That the last fraud has indeed been worse than the first. And as we said moments ago, Lord Jesus, as we, we have hope in being made new, I pray that you would make that the case for us as we put sin to death as we learn to rejoice in love and delight in holiness, as we learn wisdom, as we, as we study your word, as we devote ourselves to prayer, would you, uh, would you make us new and would you um, teach us how to be like Christ and to be citizens of the city to come? We love you. We pray all of this in Christ's name.